I read this book um, last year, um, Laura Hildenbrand's book, Unbroken, a story of, just a true story of the life of Louis Zamperini. And the, book, the movie has just recently come out, which it's a good movie, but man, it's such a better book. And so uh, we're going to be using the movie and also an excerpt from the book today uh, to look at this man, Louis, and what we can learn from him and his life. And we're introduced to him in the book as a young boy. And as a young boy, Louis is a force to be reckoned with. This is a boy who cannot be tamed by anyone. He is absolutely, he refuses to be broken and is very much does his own thing all the time. And I want to show you just a classic scene from Louis's childhood. Let's take a look. Louis's parents are just exasperated because no matter what they do, they have a son who refuses to be broken, who simply doesn't know the meaning of the word surrender. Well, Louis keeps growing, and uh, as he starts to enter his high school years, he has just become a complete disaster. And he is really heading down that road where everybody knows he's either going to end up dead or he's going to end up in jail. And so his older brother, Pete, basically takes control of the situation. And Louis idolizes his brother, Pete, who happens to be a great runner. And Pete takes Louis under his wing and basically says, look, dude, you are going to start running. That's what you're going to do. And he manages to get Louis on the high school track team. And um, it didn't hurt that there were a whole bunch of young ladies on that track team that Louis couldn't seem to get their attention. And so, um, so Louis kind of reluctantly at first joined up and uh, after a lot of discipline and a lot of hours and just, you know, a lot of stuff transpired, eventually Louis actually gets hooked. And the more that he runs, he just becomes obsessed with running. And the more he runs, the faster he gets, the faster he gets, the more races that he wins. And he starts to become legendary in his hometown of Torrance, California, eventually getting the name the Torrance Tornado. And... Um, he sets um, a, a high school, a national high school record for the mile. The mile becomes his race. And um, he goes on to get a scholarship at the University of Southern California, where he races there. And um, I was really disappointed because I read the book, and then I watched the movie of the scene I'm about to describe, and the, the movie just didn't, just didn't do it justice at all. So I'm not even going to show you the clip because it's, it's so bad, but I'm going to describe it to you because it's so good. The way it's described, it's laid out in the book. So uh, no offense, Angelina Jolie, but there you go. Um, so it's, it's um, Louis' senior year. He's at USC, and this is the NCAA championships, okay? This is the finals. He's running the one mile, and it's uh, people all from all across the country. I believe it was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and they're getting ready to run this race. And Louis, he did not lack for confidence, okay? So he is so just stoked and so confident, and the other guys pick up on this, and they decide, no, not today. You're not winning this race. And so they line up, and they go around the track the first time, and uh, as they do the first lap, uh, these three guys box Louis in. They, they box him in, they're running at the head of the pack, and, um, and he, he's trapped. He, can't, he, he just can't get out of that situation. Well, then all of a sudden, the guy on the one side of him 
stamps down with those big, you know, they have these big metal spikes. This is a 1930. So they had real metal spikes on the bottom of the shoes. And he manages to spike Louis, drives the spike through his foot. And, uh, and Louis stumbles and he somehow manages to stay up and he's kind of still running, hobbling. He's still in the pack with these three guys. Well, after that happens, the guy who's directly in front of Louis boxing him in kicks backward with his spikes and he manages to slash both of Louis's shins so his shins are split open. He's got blood streaming down his shins. He's been spiked. And if that's not bad enough, the guy on the other side of him takes his elbow and swings it back, and he hits Louis in the chest so hard that he cracks Louis's rib. Okay? Louis somehow, amazingly, is still up. And for the next two laps around the track, he's keeping pace with these guys, but still boxed in. He cannot go anywhere. Finally, with an eighth of a mile left to go, half of the length of the track left to go, he sees a tiny opening and he bursts through that opening and just explodes with all the rage and the fury inside of him and just destroys these three guys in terms of time. He crosses the finish line and he's devastated because he thought this was going to be his chance to like set some incredible record that had never been set. So he gets over to the side, blood streaming down his legs, hobbling over, and he finds out that he just set the record that would stand for 15 years, running a mile in four minutes and eight seconds. This was a man who refused to surrender no matter what he went through. You could never break Louis Zamperini. Told you it's better than the clip, those who've seen the movie. That was good. All right. So, fast forward a couple of years, and World War II is almost upon us, and Louis gets drafted into the army, and he becomes a bombardier flying B 24 bombers. Well, he goes out on many missions over the Pacific fighting against the Japanese, and on one of the missions, the plane goes down. And of the 11 men who were on board that bomber, only three make it up to the surface of the water after the crash. And Louis is one of them. And those men float on a life raft and they survive on rainwater and they survive by catching birds that land on the raft, killing them and eating them raw. And they do this for 27 days. And then on the 27th day, something happens. In this clip, the plane flew over twice. In the actual account in the book, that plane flew over seven times. Seven times. After the first time, there were only, there were two men who just had no more strength left. 27 days starving. 27 days on that raft. They couldn't get back in that water. Louis Zamperini, seven times, went down in that water, fought off sharks. Somehow, miraculously, all three of those men survived that particular attack, although one would die a few days later. After 46 days floating in the Pacific, they eventually were um, seen, but unfortunately it was by the enemy. And they were captured by the Japanese and pulled into a prison camp. And um, this is where they would stay for the next two years. They would be tortured, beaten, and starved. 
And the crazy thing to think about is that normally when POWs would be captured, they would be captured in relatively good health. And then over a, a two-year period, this is what they might look like at the end, uh, probably about half of their body weight just through the, the whole experience if they managed to survive. For Louis Zamperini, 46 days in the Pacific, he actually came in, this is a man who was 5'10", he came in at 75 pounds to the beginning of his prison camp experience. I mean, you talk about the odds being stacked against you. And to make matters worse, when Louis got to camp, he was soon singled out by the camp sergeant, a man named Watanabe, who was known by all of the prisoners as the bird because he had this tendency to kind of swoop in out of nowhere in a blind fits of rage like a bird would, and he would just, just go native on, um, on the prisoners there. And this man, the bird, took a particular sick, twisted interest in Louis. Maybe it was because Louis was a, a famous athlete. He'd actually gotten to the point where he made the Olympic team. Or maybe it was just the look in Louis's eyes and the fact that he refused to surrender. He refused to be broken. But whatever the case, the bird made it his personal mission to try and break Louis. And the stories that I could tell you up here, which I will not tell you, would horrify you and made you sick to your stomach what this man, Louis, endured. So I want to show you a clip, and, and relative to all the things that he took, this is a very, very tame clip, but it is still uh, a little bit disturbing. This is a classic encounter between Louis and his tormentor, the bird. Though Louis was beaten unconscious for this act of defiance, Louis won, didn't he? This was a man who could not be broken. What is so inspiring about Louis Zamperini is he refused to surrender. It just wasn't in his makeup. And we love that, don't we? We just want to cheer because we're so fired up. Because you see, if you think about it, we hate that word surrender, don't we? It's a terrible word. I mean, when I say the word surrender, what, what word comes to your mind? I just want you to shout it out for a second. When I say surrender, what, what, what do you associate with that word? Yeah. Giving up. What else? Yeah. Quitting. Failing. The end. Weak. Weakness. Cowardice, right? We have all of these negative connotations associated with the word surrender. And I know for sure I do. So I have a brother who's two years younger than me. We've been best friends our whole lives. We would do everything together as kids, sports, super competitive. And one of the things we love to do so much is we love to wrestle. We just constantly wrestle as many brothers do. And um, I love to pin my brother down because I was just a little bit stronger than him being two years older. And I'd pin him down. And we didn't do that whole say uncle thing. I, I'm, I was born in England, man. I don't know where that say uncle thing comes from. But anyway, I would just say, do you surrender? Do you surrender? You know, I'd be standing on top of him. Do you surrender? And he'd be like, yeah, I surrender, you know. Well, this one time, we're wrestling in my bedroom. And the wrestling went onto my bed. And I'm on top of my brother. And I'm about to pin him down. And all of a sudden, he like violently like twists his body and manages to roll both of us over. Now, 
on the one side of my bed closest to the wall, there's like about a one foot gap between the wall and the bed. You know what I'm saying? This, this was for my brother. This was his moment. Because we happened to go into that crack and I went down first and I went back, I went and I landed on my back first and he came down right on top of me, right on top of my chest. I mean, it was as if God himself was just there smiling on my brother in that moment. And so my, my brother kind of, you know, assesses what's going on. We're completely stuck down in, in this crack between my bed and he's on top of me. And all of a sudden I just see this huge smile emerge on his face because he realizes what's, what's happening. He's got me. And so just very playfully, he looks down and he goes, and he starts to slap my cheeks, just not hard, but just, you know, just kind of like, ha, 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 slapping my cheeks. And he goes, do you surrender? I'm like, dude, get off me now before I kill you. So he knows he, this is his time to shine. So he starts flicking me in the forehead. Flick, flick, flick. I start moving both fingers. Flick the ears, the forehead, you know, just flick, 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 flick. Do you surrender? Do you surrender? Do you surrender? Do you surrender? Dude, seriously, you better stop right now. So then he goes for the ultimate, the ultimate moment. Some of you have experienced this, the wet willy. You remember this, right? Finger in the mouth, a little saliva, right into the ears, man. And he double shot of the wet willy in my ears. Do you surrender? And I'm like, yes, now get off me before I kill you, right? So I have a lot of baggage around this word surrender. But the reality is, it's not a good word. It's not something we think, oh yeah, I'll have some of that. Yeah, let's surrender. Yet here's what's really interesting. Jesus actually calls us to do that very thing. We're only looking at one verse today. I want you to fix your eyes on this verse. I want you to dwell on it. I want you to meditate on it this week because it is so incredibly powerful. Here's what he says in Mark's gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection in chapter eight, verse 34. It says, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And this is what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, this is the words of Jesus Christ. Now, whether you believe here today that Jesus is the son of God who died for you and you have given your life to follow after him, or whether you just believe that like, man, he might've been a prophet or had some really good things to say or whatever, here's what you, you cannot deny. This is the most influential person to ever walk the face of this earth and his teachings have impacted generation after generation after generation, not just Christians, but the world. And Jesus Christ tells us that he has the way to peace and joy and not just life, but abundant life, life in its fullest form. But the way to that is through this word that we hate, the word surrender. I just want to break down 
what he says into, into these three parts. He says, you want to be my disciple? Here we go. Number one, deny yourself. What deny yourself really means is give up your rights. Okay, Give up your rights fully. So if you're in a battle and you have to surrender to somebody, guess what? The victor gets control. They have full control now over you and over your life. And basically, denying yourself is basically saying to Jesus, Jesus, you have total control. Okay, No longer my way, it's your way. So deny yourself, that's the first thing he says. And he says, take up your cross. Now, the cross would have been known just the same way lethal injection or the electric chair is known to us today. The cross was the form of execution back then. Everyone knew that that was a reference that you must be willing to pay the price, even to death, that you would be fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, to following him, doing what he said, even if it cost you your very life. And then finally, he says, follow me. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us today. Oh, he just went off and had lunch with him or something. No, 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 no. When a rabbi would say those two words 2,000 years ago to someone who was interested in following after that rabbi, when they would say, follow me, that person that Jesus said that to would leave everything. They would leave their home. They would leave their family. They would leave their village. They would leave their place of worship. They would leave everything behind. And they now would complete, they would even leave their way of thinking and their way of acting. And they would surrender that to the rabbi. And basically now they'd go where the rabbi went. They would do what the rabbi did. They would think the way the rabbi thought. They would completely surrender. And this is actually what Jesus calls us to as his followers, to complete surrender to him. But what's crazy about that is that, and this is so counterintuitive, but it's actually through complete surrender to Jesus Christ that we find life and we find peace and we find joy and we find hope. Crazy stuff. So let's get back to Louis for a minute. So after two years as a POW, the Allied troops finally won the war, and Louis was released along with the other prisoners, and he got to go home. When he got home, he tried to put a life back together for himself. He met this beautiful woman named Cynthia. They got married. He got a job and um, tried to do the best he could to put things behind him. But the reality was he couldn't put those things behind him. He'd been released from the war, but the war was still raging inside him. And every single night when Louis went to sleep, the bird would meet him in his dreams and would haunt him. The only way that Louis could get to sleep was by drinking so much alcohol that he could like calm himself down to the point where he could fall asleep. He became a raging alcoholic. He was a total menace to everybody around him, especially his beautiful wife. And the only thing that kept Louis sane, you guys, there was only one thing. He was saving up money from his job to be able to fly to Japan, hunt down the bird, and personally kill him. That was the only thing that was keeping Louis Zamperini alive. 
One night, as he went to sleep, he once again dreamed of the bird, and the bird was over the top of him, strangling him to death. And somehow, Louis managed to muster the strength to turn over, and now he was on top of the bird, strangling the bird. And as he clutched around the bird's neck, all of a sudden, something in his consciousness came to, and he realized he was strangling his pregnant wife in his own bed. Well, that was it. His wife, we're done. It's time for a divorce. The proceedings were underway when she heard about a Billy Graham uh, festival that was happening, one of these Christian crusade festival things. And um, she begged and begged and begged Louis to go, and he refused and refused and refused, but she just persisted, and she was relentless. And so finally he said, okay, I'll go. And the movie, unfortunately, does not uh, tell any of this account, but the book describes it in vivid detail. For Louis Zamperini, the war was over. For the man who could not be broken. The man who didn't know the meaning of the word surrender. He actually came to find that it was through surrender that he found peace, that he found joy, and that he found life. When you came in today, in your handout, you should have gotten a little white piece of fabric that is your white flag for today. I want you to take that out, if you would. This white flag symbolizes something that we don't like very much. We can understand and we resonate with Louis, this never wanting to surrender. But here's the thing I want to challenge you guys with as, um, as the music team comes up now, they're going to they're going to play the first part of, uh, of a song for you. And as those who want to get baptized this morning feel moved to just come forward, if you'd like to do that, just come right over here where these folks are standing against this wall. So as that's all happening, I just want to ask you one question as you hold that little flag in your hand. What is God asking you to surrender? What do you need to let go of that you're holding on to right now? For some of you, you're here in this room and you have never fully surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You have never fully said, you know what, Jesus, you have the rights to my life. I'm just going to do what you do. I'm going to say what you say. I'm yours. Maybe today you will write June 7th, 2015. Because today is the day when you finally turned your life over to him. Maybe for others of us in this room, we remember when we did that. But in the time between then and now, we've picked up a whole bunch of stuff. We've taken control back, haven't we? And maybe today is a day where you're saying, you know what? I'm raising my white flag and I'm going to re-surrender my life to you, Jesus. Because there's way too much that I'm holding on to that I know that I shouldn't be. Or maybe for others of you, you know there is something 
that you need to surrender to God. What I want you to do right now is as the team plays the beginning part of this song that we're going to sing, I just want you to stay seated and I just want you to take that up with God. God, what do you want me to surrender? So um, this is Marlisa. Can you guys say hi to Marlisa? help if Marlisa had a microphone. That would be good. Marlisa's going to share her surrender. Forgive my fashion statement here, these sweatpants. <laughs> All right. Um, when I was young, my mother used to take my brother and I with her every Sunday to attend a small country church in a small country town, the Shenandoah Valley. At this time, I knew of God, I knew of Jesus, but I did not know him. As I grew older, my family began to fall away from God. I'm not quite sure what happened, really. I guess we got caught up in the business of life. We stopped attending church, and we stopped talking about God. Still, I knew of Him. I knew of His Son. And by this time, I knew of the sacrifice He had made for me. But I did not know Him. When I was a teenager, something came over me. I've heard many times that we do not necessarily seek out God on our own. He seeks us first. I can't put into words what this urge felt like, but I'm positive many of you today understand exactly what I'm talk talking about. I just knew that the life I was living was meant for something greater, that I was meant to achieve something huge, but not on my own. Even still, I knew of God, and I knew of the power of the Holy Spirit, yet I still didn't know Him. Fast forward 10 years to when I met my husband, right after I graduated college. I was in the middle of of what would be a seven-year span. That would be the most challenging years of my life. Every horrible thing you could imagine happening to a family happened to mine in one shape or form. Addiction, divorce, abuse, financial problems, disease, depression, and death. I was a completely different person than I am now. I did many things that I still find myself ashamed of. I enjoyed polluting the lives of others with the same pain and hurt I felt every day. I wasn't a happy person and I wasn't a confident person. But God is awesome. And somehow I found myself once again in another small church. This time it was a Korean Bible study with my future mother-in-law and husband. It was here that the call of God would become too strong for me. On this particular day, I admitted my sins and was saved. I took the first and most important step of my life. I was starting to know God. They say God works on a different schedule than we do. I think that it has a lot of truth to it because even though I was saved, I was still not walking with God. I would occasionally go to church, occasionally pray, and maybe even open the Bible. Important first steps, but my spiritual growth and was ultimately stunted because I wasn't listening. I was missing out on the biggest opportunity of my life because I refused to fully commit myself to God. Time and time again, I easily turned away from God in search of fulfillment in my career, friends, partying, and money. When fulfillment didn't come, even amid great events like job promotions and marriage, I remember finding myself angry, judgmental, and entitled. What was I doing wrong? Why weren't things right in my life? Why do others seem happier and more successful than me? What I didn't realize at the time was that no amount of self-help books, accolades, friends, or parties 
were going to give me eternal fulfillment because I still only knew of God and I refused to know him. Then finally I did something I thought was silly. I made a New Year's resolution on January 1st of 2015. My resolution was that I would, for the first time, give myself completely to God. I would no longer make excuses and I would no longer live my life for me alone. I would give 110% to my relationship with God. I would go to church, I would pray, I would read the Bible, and I would finally walk by His word. I would finally know Him because I would live for Him. And you know what? My life has completely changed every single aspect of it. Family, career, friends, finances, health, self-image, marriage, and more. They have all catapulted into something I could have never imagined. It took more than 25 years, but I now have a purpose and I have an ending joy. I am fulfilled. In fact, this is what brings me here today, to publicly profess my love and commitment to our Savior by finally doing something I've wanted to do since I was saved, but the timing wasn't right. This is the proudest day of my life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. God, what an amazing story of what you have been up to in Marlisa's life. We're all honored to have just been able to hear that right now. And we are so thankful that you are a God who never gives up on us, that you are a God who is relentless in your pursuit of us, that your love never fails. And Lord, that when we can just finally get to a point where we're willing to surrender, or we're willing to let you have control. It is awesome to hear what you can do. And thank you for what you've done in Marlisa's life. We just pray for her, God, that you would keep her surrendered to you, that she would continue to experience all of these blessings and the joy that comes from this surrendered relationship with you. And God, right now for everyone in this room who just, that just touched us so deeply because her story is our story. God, help us once again to surrender what we need, to surrender to you, to turn it over to the one who can handle it so much better than we can. Lord, I just lift up those in this room who are doing that right now, surrendering their life to you, Jesus. I thank you that they're able to turn their life over to you. And I pray, God, you would fill them with a fullness they have never yet known. We thank you so much. And we pray for Marlisa as she's baptized this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.